0: This is Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship. I'm Father Yuri Hladio, an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. I'm joined by my friend and teacher, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey is the director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto and holds a doctorate in liturgical theology. Welcome, Father Jeffrey, and welcome to all our listeners. I believe this is our 10th episode in our series on Baptism, Father Jeffrey, and it is only now that we have mm-hmm. actually reached baptism. Right.
1: Well, I mean, that's typical of our of our services, right? That they have, they're so rich and there's so many different elements to it. And, you know, what I, you know, I I, I always bristle when people talk about, okay, what's the key part of the service, right? Or what's mm. the what's the part that you know is the essential the essence you know of the service could you reduce it to this and in orthodox terms with our services, that, that moment doesn't exist, right? So you can't take the divine liturgy and compress it down to, well, just this prayer would suffice. And if you did that, then that would be the Eucharist. Well, no, it's the whole thing from beginning to end. And so the same thing here with with these mysteries of initiation, you know, it's important that every part of this, you know, is kind of gone through. But, you know, I suppose if you had an essential bit to baptism, it would be what we're about to talk about. But but we don't do it in that way. We, we always celebrate celebrate. celebrate it as that full service with each part of it playing such an important role within, within the whole of that um, sacrament.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons why I think like I mentioned in our previous episode, this is the moment where the cameras come out, right? This is where the, even if you've never been to an Orthodox service, this it's, it's such like a, it's such a grand action, Right to dunk somebody in the water, whether it's a baby or whether it's an adult, right there's like a there's a maybe gravitas is the right word or like there's something just different about it, and I think people just naturally know that this is a really, really important moment in the service, even if they've never really attended liturgical worship uh services before um so i can I can imagine why people would want to sort of. Or have the tendency to want to reduce down to maybe the most visible um, liturgical motion and, and things like that. But also the whole service is called, we call it, are you coming to the baptism? Mm. Right? So then obviously the baptism itself must be the most important part. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, oh yeah. The, the whole of everything we've been talking about um, you know, can be called baptism, but that's, a in a way, it's a synecdoche, right? It, it's right. it's taking one part of it to, to represent the whole rather than, well, uh, yeah, so the baptism is actually going to be at 1047, but we're doing all this other stuff before, but you probably don't need to come until then, right? You know, it's a yeah. bit, it, it'd be like, you know, reading a novel or watching a film, but only you know, going to the climax. Yeah. It'd be like uh, going,
0: it'd be like going to a wedding, but then saying, you know, they, they've invited you to their wedding and you say, okay, but like, I know you're going to do your vows and you're going to have to walk down the aisle. Just when is the, when is, when is the minister going to pronounce you married? That's right. I'm I'm going to show up for that.
1: Right. So things don't make sense unless they're, they're in context. So, I mean, yeah, climax is probably a a really good way of, of explaining this because there's, there's a whole process, a, a development. There's a story that has to be unfold, right? And mm-hmm. that story only makes sense once it's had, you know, um, all of the different parts um, in place. So I, I think, you know, we've made the point here that, you know, this... Yes, it does stand for for the whole thing, and it's it, it you know without this it, a baptism hasn't taken place clearly mm-hmm. right you couldn't do the rest of the thing and say well we we overlooked this one little element you know that part where the the candidate is put in the water you know but otherwise we did a baptism you wouldn't say that right right uh, whereas you know one or another element of the overall story could conceivably be left out and obviously and where does this reduction you know kind of make sense well in an emergency situation you know you're called uh to a hospital someone has moments you know to live can you reduce as it were the whole of the mysteries of initiation down to um you know say even just a pouring of water with the the baptismal formula that we're about to talk about yes clearly right mm-hmm. um you know and and the earliest Texts of the Christian uh, Church, uh, you know, re- refer to things like that, right? So that the teaching of the twelve apostles, the so-called Didache, a document that comes from sometime in the first century, evolved a little bit through through that and, into the second century, but it probably predates most of it. You know, the, the rest of the New Testament, uh, but it talks about okay. Ideally, this is how baptism takes place. But if you don't have that, we'll then do this, and then and so there's always this sense in which it's it's so important it's important that you you that this is done as a symbol of the birth of the, the you know the birth into the kingdom of god so the death and resurrection with christ so it's important that we do this so in cases of emergency or of great urgency then you can curtail you know the rest of the of the service a little bit but ideally you know this you know, the whole thing needs to be done. And, I, you know, we spoke about earlier in this series that ideally it's actually taking place within a divine liturgy. And ideally it's taking place at Pascha. So, I mean, those are the l- even larger bits to this. In fact, mm. doing this on a Saturday afternoon, even if you did all the parts of this service, is a reduction, right? Because you've reduced right. it out of the context of the of the divine liturgy. You've reduced it out of that whole lenten holy week and paschal context that really it belongs in and so you know inevitably there'll be some level of reduction here but as Mm -hmm. far as possible let us celebrate this as a whole that is connected with everything in the story of god and of of his redeeming acts
0: well let us jump into the rubrics and the text of the actual baptism the dunking the dipping Mm-hmm. All right. So the rubrics that I have in my book are actually specifically designed for a child. So uh, you can, uh, like if it's this as an adult, it would be a little different. For example, you wouldn't hold up the uh, the adult under the armpits, you know, above your head. Uh, well,
1: if you've been doing your proper weight training, Father Yuri, you could yeah, take guess. any baptismal candidate and hold him or her upright and look toward
0: the east, right? Well, we'll see. I'm, I'm trying my best. Okay, here it is. After the anointing, the presbyter takes the child for baptism, holding the child upright and facing towards the east. The presbyter immerses the child in the baptismal water three times, saying the servant of God name is baptized in the name of the Father. Amen. Immerse. And of the Son. Amen. Immerse. And of the Holy Spirit. Amen immerse. Of course, the Presbyter isn't saying immerse. That's part of the rubrics that I'm saying, but after each amen, after each invocation of the uh, person of the Holy Trinity, there is an immersion. So by the end, y- you will have been immersed three times, and the, the I'll just say the formula again. The servant of God name is baptized in the name of the Father, amen, and of the Son, amen, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. And sometimes the congregation will join in those amens. Sometimes at the end, they'll add two more amends to make it three amends to make it a really, just to, to really seal the deal. Um, and of course, by that time, a child might be crying. The pictures are going, people are laughing. The towels are coming out to dry the candidate. It's, uh it tends to be, uh it really frenetic. is a highlight. Hi- frenetic, <laughs> that's the word. That's the word for sure. Yeah, but, um, I mean, it,
1: which is all about what a climax of a story does, right? Um, you know, it, it 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 sometimes can be very, uh quick in the way that it passes by right you have, so you have this lengthy story which as i say could involve all of lent and all of holy week and all of pasca and all of the divine liturgy and all of the service that we've talked about you know so far but you get to this moment it actually passes by relatively quickly right like a climax in in a in a film or a novel you know might do so it it, it sometimes we have to kind of slow down the film um, in our own minds and take things, you know, frame by frame in order to kind of unpack them, sometimes by reflection afterwards. And part of the reason for having the whole context is that we're prepared to at least notice something at this moment, prepared thereafter to reflect on, on what's happening, because the actual, you know, number of frames that through which this passes are, are relatively, you know, short. It's a matter of seconds, right? It's not a, it's not a long, drawn out, you know, moment. Hence the mm-hmm. the cameras coming out and snapping quickly because you need to capture that, you know, that moment.
0: Yeah. One of the things, I mean, building on what you were just saying, Father Jeffrey, one of the things that I've note uh, that I notice here is that a lot of the other, um, a lot of the other parts of the baptismal service they have these maybe big long prayers that happen before the actual um event that sort of will explain the setting that we're in right you can you can think the the prayers for the great blessing of water right it's sort of explaining all of creation and and god's participation and our participation and the the you know the union of heaven and earth and all this stuff and then there's the blessing of water throughout that um you have the prayer that's sort of explaining um, in our last episode, that sort of explains the, uh, the, the blessing of the oil. In that prayer is a lot of explaining of what's going on. It's the, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Um, here, though, there is no real prayer of setting the stage of what we're doing with the baptism. Um, it seems to me, and we'll get to this in other episodes, but that it's actually in the prayers, the scripture readings and the hymns to follow the immersion where we 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 reflect on the meaning of what has just happened but i just find it fascinating that in the moment it's not like O oh, Lord, our God, who who took on human form and descended in, you know, into the realm of death and was raised again and who was with the Israelites through the waters of Egypt and then drowned the tyrant in the sea. Be with your servant name who is descending into the waters of death to be raised up again. Right. There's no prayer like that. Maybe I should write that prayer. That sounds nice. Um, but uh, there's no prayer like that just before the actual baptism. And it's just, boom, here you go. The servant of God is baptized. Um, I don't know. I, I just find that fascinating. It seems to have broken with the pattern of the way that these events take place in the service. I'm not sure if you agree with me or not, but that's sort of what I'm seeing. Well, why not? I will agree with you, sure. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, yeah,
1: no, you, you're absolutely right. And uh, it's part of what I was saying. You know, This is going by really quickly and because there's nothing... You know, around it, so we've gone from this rich experience, this luxurious experience of anointing, right, and the filling of uh, you know the, the the kind of of the whole human person, body, member, senses, with with the oil uh, of gladness and of grace and so forth, uh, and then suddenly the baptism takes place. And if you happen to have looked away for twenty seconds, you'd have missed it, right? And there's there is no surrounding of that now this is partly, um, maybe in large part, a reflection of the early church practice about what you knew and what you were given to know before you actually entered the church, right? So, you know, we spoke in earlier episodes about catechumenate, uh, about that, that lengthy preparation of uh, you know, becoming you know a candidate and, and going through even the whole Lenten period is a development of the preparation of catechumens, you know, for baptism. But until about the fifth century, uh, you don't find any evidence for people being told what their baptism means or indeed participation in any of the sacraments. So baptism is the first sacrament that you're going to go through. Um, so you don't find out about the meaning of baptism. You don't find out about the meaning of chrismation. You don't find out about the Eucharist or the meaning of the Eucharist until after you're baptized. Right. So you're told a lot. You're told the story of God, of of salvation, the story of Israel. You're told uh, everything. You know, we spoke in the last episode about the foreshadowing of grace that that oil of, of anointing represents. So in a way, that oil of anointing, that oil of gladness is the kind of capstone on everything that went before, and I mentioned, you know, it represents in a way the oil and the, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant, right? Everything you could know up to the time of God's incarnation in Jesus Christ, it, and 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 that's a lot, right? I mean, that that is that is being part of God's family. It is part of of uh, being brought into connection with the Holy Spirit into the into the life of God but not yet fully. It's a foreshadowing. And so there was a real reluctance. And if you see this represented in the baptismal, catechetical, uh, mystagogical um, uh, homilies of, of early church fathers, they don't talk about what happens in the actual sacrament or what it means until after. Right. So those mm. early mystagogical catecheses, uh, mystagogy means to lead into the mystery. Well, they, they don't reveal anything of the mystery itself until post baptism, you're given a whole set of new instructions, new reflection on what's already happened. So it says things like, you know, you have just had this experience. This is what it means. Right. Mm. By about the fifth, sixth century, this starts to change and there's, there's more attention before. People become, uh, you know, members of the church, members of the body of Christ in baptism, more attention to what the the sacrament means and so forth. But in that earliest period, it was kept a mystery. It was kept hidden, you know, in, in that sense. It was only revealed after the fact. So here is this dramatic moment. It's quick. You know, it's like going through a gateway, right? And mm. it's a death, it's a resurrection, it's a going down and coming up. And then after that, you're going to have this whole reflection on what it actually you know, meant. But, you know, you, you may be very little prepared for what's happening. You may be told, okay, you're going to have your clothes removed, mm-hmm. which is what happened. Uh, and then something's going to happen to you. But you may not know very much about what that is, because you would never have seen it. Right, uh, and you would never certainly not have experienced or read about it or had it explained to you before. So I think in a really clever way, the service, even though we don't necessarily hide that reality, it's probably a full, you know, explanation ahead of time that people probably hold books in their hands or they've watched it on YouTube or whatever ahead of time. Even though we no longer have that hiddenness to it, that kind of secret character to the holy mysteries, uh, the service itself preserves that at its core you know, through this kind of dramatic gateway, only from this point forward are you going to be told, you know, the fullness of what this is all about. And this is also reflected in the lectionary as well. You you had kind of exposure to the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, ahead of your participation in these mysteries of initiation, but you were not told anything about the Gospel of John. Until afterwards, the Mm. Gospel of John, which is the gospel of the enlightened, of the illumined from beginning to end. It's a theological, you know, uh, explanation of of the life of Jesus and of the saving, redeeming mysteries of his life, death, resurrection and ascension. And, uh, you know, in the church year, again, this all turns around Pascha, right? We read the synoptics through the year, including through the Lenten period. And then from Pascha, what do we start reading? The Gospel of John, chapter one. You know, about uh, the word who was with God, who was God, who came and, and tabernacled in our midst and made people to become, you know, new creation, children of grace and participants in the, in the light and grace and life of God himself. And so we read John from that point forward. But you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have seen the Gospel of John or, or been exposed to it before these mysteries. So there are all these kind of liturgical connections to that ancient idea that you need to to belong nearly before you believe, right? You mm-hmm. need to to be made a member before you're able to even understand or be shown, uh, you know, the fullness of, of what this is all about. So, so indeed, it's kind of a hinge moment, you know, as a climax, right? That, you know, from this point forward, there's going to be a great deal of reflection on what this is all about, but there's, it, it almost happens out of the blue, right? Um, you know, mm-hmm. you're just plunged into water and what, we'll, so what does that mean? Well, we'll go on to find out.
0: The podcast you're listening to reflects only the public half of the overall project of enacting the kingdom. Father Jeffrey and I actively post new episodes on our completely separate private podcast. This private space gives us the freedom to debate and discuss open and sometimes controversial questions regarding the Orthodox faith amongst a smaller and more dedicated audience if you become a patron now you'll get immediate access to our growing backlog of private episodes including a discussion on the ordination of women and the coronavirus multiple spoon controversy to get access to our private podcast go to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom looking forward to having you join our growing community on patreon now back to the show We did talk about this um, in a previous episode, possibly in our introduction to the entire season three of baptism, uh, that episode. But I think it's worth bringing up here again, but knowing, Father Jeffrey, that we have covered some of the same material. But I want to talk about immersion. Um, Because, you know, especially in certain um, Protestant churches, there's been a lot of conflict over what does it actually look like to baptize somebody. And the actual physical... Uh, enacting of it has become a point of disagreement and um, breaking of church unity within certain um, denominations of Protestant Christianity. So, um, and it it causes, in my opinion, I mean, it it does cause a lot of consternation uh, for people. Uh, How do you actually, how do you physically actually enact the act of baptizing? So in our book here, it says, uh, immerse, immerse, immerse. Right? So there's, there is a triple immersion going on here. But, you know, if anyone's been around Orthodoxy long enough, they know that there's actually within Orthodoxy, there still is a, a, a wide variety of um, methods of actually performing the baptism. I've been at some where the water is poured over the head, but the person isn't actually fully immersed into the water. I've seen baptisms where the, the candidate is sitting basically in the water and then the water is poured on their head. I've seen baptisms in which the bapti the, the candidate is fully dunked into the water and back out three times so um, i think it'd be worth just talking a little bit about this immersion and kind of our orthodox approach to the physical action of baptism right
1: um so the the thing we noted before obviously is the word we have baptized is just a transliteration of the greek right so the this is a it doesn't have any other meaning, you know, um, Mm -hmm. than, than what the Greek word means. So what does baptizo, you know, mean? Um, and it has various, um, meanings. It, it, it means to, to put something, you know, into something else. So like dip is probably the most obvious and, um, you know, common use of that term. And it wasn't just, you know, Connected to this religious ritual, you know, by any means. I mean, we, I think we mentioned before about the reference to Judas baptizing his bread, you know, in the wine, mm-hmm. in the cup, you know, at the Last Supper and so forth. And that was the sign that he was the one who was going to betray Christ. So it's the same verb, essentially, that is used, you know, there. Um you know, they can also mean kind of a little bit more metaphorically, something like overwhelm, to be overcome with something, right? So there, there is that way in which that sometimes, you know, is used. Now, I you get into really detailed, you know, discussion of, well, how much of something um, is overwhelmed, overcome, or placed into the water or liquid or whatever for it to be a baptism, right? Um, so if you dip something, it doesn't necessarily imply every part of it is soaked thoroughly, right? So we might in English distinguish between immersion, which means to put something you know, into water or some sort of liquid, uh, from submersion, <laughs> right? Where it's clearly right underneath. Right. So um, I, mean, I say this because there are certain Orthodox who get their knickers in a twist over this. Right. Because throughout the Orthodox world, this is practiced you know, differently in many Orthodox countries. Um, today, the candidate is placed in the font, whatever size that is of candidate or font, um, and maybe up to their waist or to their chest. And then water is poured over the head. And so that clearly is immersion. I mean, you would say that person was immersed. You wouldn't say they were submerged, right? Mm -hmm. Submerged is where the whole body is underneath, you know, the water, like a submarine. Um, And so there are certain people, and I think they've probably largely taken this from... The Anabaptists, right? They've observed, you know, this insistence in Western tradition, because this became a big debate at the time of the Protestant Reformation or the Second Reformation. The so-called Anabaptists, the, the, the those who would baptize again, they had two concerns. One is, you know, the idea that it had to be a believer's baptism. Um, so anybody baptized as an infant, that didn't cut it, right? So you would be baptized again, Anabaptist. Um And also, they thought that the physicality of of a full immersion, you know, was important. But in fact, they went for submersion. So I think a lot of Orthodox in the West, when they look at, say, what happens in Russia or Serbia or wherever else where it's up to the chest with a pouring, they sort of say, well, that's a bit second best, isn't it? Because, you know, sure, the Baptists and, you know... um, Mennonites and others, they they go right under the water, right? So I think that there's a bit of a confounding of submersion and immersion there that's unnecessary. Because in fact, if you go back to the very early church and the earliest iconography about this, one of the key things seems to be this very scriptural idea of the waters from below and the waters from above, right? And even the icons of the, the baptism of Christ, which show him, you know, immersed yes in the jordan say up to his waist or his chest with the water being poured you know from above you know on him and the earliest baptismal fonts had that idea of the flowing water that comes from above pouring down on the head and with the candidate up to you know a certain point their their waist or their chest or whatever the baptismal fonts were not big enough you know, to to accommodate a full submersion. So it's a very modern idea that some Orthodox have taken, and they sort of look, you know, with some um, derision at, you know, Orthodox who would put either an infant or an adult into a font up to a certain point and then pour water over their head as though that were somehow second best. Actually, that is a purer representation of the earliest church practice, right? And I
0: think uh, you can see, like, the images of Christ being baptized, often you'll see the water up to his chest, and, and John the Baptist pouring water onto his head. That's right. Um, I mean, fact, which, you know, go ahead.
1: I was just going to say, go back to that Didache that I mentioned—that that, that first-century document, you know, about early church practice and teaching and so forth—and it has this to say about baptism: concerning baptism, baptize this way, as you know, I mean, immerse this way. Having said all these things, um, baptize into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in living water ah water you know not a font that is still water that you submerge yourself in but you immerse and you have this idea of the flowingness of water the idea of the water is in motion and so forth so ideally you know it's in some kind of you know uh you know, stream, river, uh, some sort of fountain or whatever. In fact, early baptismal fonts had that characteristic. They were built over a living stream of some kind. And they had, there were vessels that were used for, for lifting that water and creating that living, flowing sense. Mm-hmm. But it does go on to say, if you do not have living water, baptize in other water. And if you can't in cold, in warm, that's an interesting thing. Because I think yeah. often we, we kind of make sure the font has a kind of nice, you know, bath, <laughs> yeah. you know, temperature yeah. to it or whatever. No, no, that's just, these are all like this. We're now moving way down the list of ideal here, right? So it's, if it's not cold, okay, we can tolerate warm. If you have not either, pour out water thrice upon the head in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So even if you can't get the immersion going, the flowing, it seems to be a more essential part. Pour yeah. out the waters. So that's the idea of a fusion right and, and there's the technical term from from the Latin of a fuse and that, that's where Western practice you know came in Roman Catholic Anglican terms they pour water um, uh, and then it goes on to ask you know to, to ensure that the the bapt- the one who's being baptized uh and the one doing the baptism, and everyone else, as far as possible, to have fasted a day or two Mm. before. So these Mm -hmm. are things that people tend to to leave out these days, where (laughs) they focus on one sort of modality that they have etched in their mind, and they, they, they ignore the fact that the church has been more diverse than that, but that there's this kind of hierarchy, and the ideal is to somehow immerse and pour at the same time, to have this living water represented. So you'd have to say that what happens today typically in places like Russia or Serbia, where it's this kind of up to the chest with a pouring over top, is actually the purest representation of the imaging of baptism from from the early church. But I'm not this is not me casting doubts, Father Yuri, on those who have mm-hmm. been fully submerged three times rather than through through pouring. I, I think the full grace of God is active there. And I don't, you know, ask for them to be rebaptized or mm-hmm. or anything. But it's ironic because there are people who would say if you haven't had that, then you you might need to go and do it again, which is I think altogether unfortunate.
0: Yeah. We have we have a couple of minutes left and I'm sorry I didn't ask this earlier because there's this part just after the baptism. um, So, you know, after one of the readers might read Psalm 31, which is uh, all about the forgiveness of sins, but it's the part after that that is... I think we could talk at length about, but we only have a couple of minutes, but the presbyter says the servant of God name is clothed in the robe of righteousness in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And when he does that, he takes the white baptismal garment and places it upon the newly baptized. Um, and then the the, the people saying, you know, as the newly baptized is being clothed in the in the baptismal garment. The following is sung grant unto me a robe of light, most merciful Christ, our God who clothe yourself with light as with a garment. And I mean, the, the image of the baptismal robe is, um, huge. Like it's, it's such a huge image in the scriptures. You know, when you think of, especially in the book of revelation, where you have all the, 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 the thousands and thousands who are all in their white baptismal robes, you know, um, uh, it's praising God in, in the kingdom. Um, and in that moment that this candidate has now been baptized and has joined that, that multitude. Um, so I don't know if you want to say any more on that, father Jeffrey, I feel like we could go on for another half hour just on the, uh, the robe. Maybe that's worth doing another episode on. I don't know how you feel.
1: It might be, although you know, like the baptism itself, it's going to be unpacked, right? In the in the service that that follows. So this robe of righteousness, it's clearly it's the putting on of Christ, right? So uh, we're going to talk about all those who have been Mm -hmm. baptized into Christ that put on Christ. Well, the, the symbolic representation of that is this garment of immortality, this royal robe, it's it's the white garments of Christ's transfiguration, which is the true glory of of the human person filled with with divine life. It's an ordination gown. You know the the you know every time a deacon, a presbyter, a bishop vests you know the first garment that is put on is the sticharion, right? And that is actually the baptismal robe. It's the same robe that we continue to to put on. So that priesthood uh, and that ministry of all believers is an ordination, and so here and it's, it's, um, it's happening here.
0: It's um, it's also like the the bridal. It's like sure. a, a wedding dress. It's a white wedding dress that we become the bride. Which is what of, we of say when we put
1: that saccharine on, right? Exactly. It's like a, like a bride adorns herself and, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, so like the baptism itself, you know, this isn't the, the last thing we're going to say about it because the rest of the service yeah. from the readings to the hymns to the prayers are all going to just unpack what has happened here. Yeah. Right. So that, I think
0: that's, <clears throat> if I were to sort of just draw out a little bit of. The ca- so I think physically what happens here is the candidate comes wearing one thing. They are stripped down to i mean depend nowadays if it's an adult they don't get naked though they would in the earliest church yeah. but um but they you know they strip down to whatever um a baby would likely be completely naked. you then baptize the candidate and then they are dressed with a new um robe like they're dressed with a new with new clothes yeah um. And, those- and they wear
1: that for eight days, you
0: know, <laughs> according to the rubrics, right? Because there's a
1: removal yeah. of that baptismal garment and a prayer on the eighth day. Like mm-hmm. you mentioned wedding, you know, the wedding crowns is the same, mm-hmm. you know, principle. Um but, uh, but you know, here in, in our practice, we don't ask people to go around in their white, shiny garment for <laughs> for a week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unless, of course, it's taken place, you know, on a retreat in a monastery where there are, you know, that you could actually imagine this being done, you know, fully that way. But so we'll, we'll come back to this when we, we catch those prayers later in the service and so forth. But for now, it's all part of this. Stuff's happening. We're going to explain it later, right? Apart from yeah. the... Um, as you mentioned, the the singing of Psalm uh, thirty-one, right, that that talks about the the, the forgiveness of sins um, and a kind of uh, you know becoming filled with God's mercy and, and forgiveness and so forth, and this kind of clothing of, of white is a is a you know the, our, our sins are erased, we become as white as snow is kind of the the, mm-hmm. the implication here. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, was there anything else you wanted to add, Father Jeffrey? I think there's just one thing we kind of passed
1: over, and it's, <laughs> it's worth mentioning. Um, again, we can unpack it, you know, more fully as we, we go along. But it's the, the use of the passive voice uh, in both of the phrases, you know, particularly, obviously, the servant of God name is baptized. And then we also mentioned when the, the, the robe is given, the servant of God name is clothed, right? So it, it's not... I baptize you, or I clothe you. Um, and that, that, we find this often in the sacramental services at this moment, the presbyter kind of steps back a bit. And although he's still doing the action, you know, who is standing really in the place as the celebrant of the service is Christ himself, right? So, uh, and this is, you know, pr- Pronouncedly different, you know, from uh, Western tradition, you know, where the baptismal formula in Latin, "ego te baptizo in nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti," I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, and you know, I think often Western Christians look at the, the Eastern formula as somehow being, I don't know, a little bit more timid or something. Well, no, it's it's giving place to Christ precisely at this moment, the servant of God is baptized. Um, and uh, and also, I mean, it's Christ, but then the whole body of Christ as well. And to, to know that everybody who has gathered, and that should be the whole community, right? It's not just the family occasion on a Saturday afternoon. It's the whole community, ideally gathered in the divine liturgy, ideally gathered at Pascha, that joins together and all together are the body of Christ that is the celebrant of, of this sacrament. And so the presbyter, you know, takes a, almost a slightly backseat role here by using the passive voice in, in that baptismal formula.
0: Enacting the Kingdom is a patron-supported show. And if you're not a patron, you're only getting half of everything we create. If you'd like to join our growing community of supporters, please go to patreon.com enactingthekingdom enacting the kingdom. Your patronage goes a long way to keeping this show going. Thanks so much. And we'll see you next time.